It's the Do Politics Better podcast. I'm Brian Lewis. And I'm Sky David. Another busy week. I know I said last week, I hope this week would be less adventurous. You said not to keep my hopes up. You were correct. It was a crazy week at the General Assembly. Wow. I will never get tired of you saying that I am correct. But yes, it was a crazy week. So much news, so many bills. I think that there were like over 100 bills that moved each day. So lots of stuff happening, a lot to cover. So Monday morning, news breaks that Apple has decided to expand its operations into North Carolina here in Wake County. We had heard for a couple of years, the media organizations were trying to get more detail on what the incentives were that we had offered Apple before they chose to go to Texas. And folks kept saying, hey, it's not over. We can't give you that. We can't give you those details because it's something still might be happening. And um, the media was kind of like, I don't think that's true. But turns out it was true. The state has offered up about $850 million in incentives. In return, Apple is going to bring 3,000 employees to Wake County, many of which are going to come here. They are going to do some local hires, but it's going to have a $1 billion impact here in Wake County. So it's going to have this huge economic boost to this area. But there's also this talk that, you know, Apple is very much involved in public policy and they are going to really weigh in on a lot of issues. Uh, One of the things that was a concern to them was, you know, some of the social issues that we've seen since 2016, HB2 being number one. And so since that is sunsetted, it kind of gave them the green light to come to North Carolina. There, were some, there are some bills pending in the General Assembly, and, and I don't know if it was uh, whether it was Apple or whether the leadership just did not want to touch these social issues, but we saw some of the, the bills dealing with trans youth and transgender North Carolinians. They also seem to have um, fizzled out. Fizzled out, yeah. On Monday afternoon, the census data came in. There was a live press conference, you saw the map of the United States, who was losing seats and who was gaining seats. And as expected, North Carolina gained a congressional seat. Yeah, so we're going to have 14 seats. It has created a lot of buzz in the building. Are there existing legislators who are going to move into a congressional seat? By the way, this happens a lot when when the 13th district was added back in, I believe, 2000. Brad Miller got that seat. He also happened to be the chairman of the redistricting committee that drew that map. A lot of speculation about where the seat will be and will anyone in the General Assembly make a bid for Congress. In our weekly update on who is running for Senator Burr's Senate seat, this week there was a Democrat who entered the race and a Republican who entered the race. Democrat uh, former Chief Justice Sherry Beasley entered on Tuesday and I think within 24 hours had a pretty extensive endorsement list from Democrats across the state, either 
current legislators, former legislators, other elected officials, and then Ted Budd entered the Republican primary for that seat. Yeah, so it is starting to gel what this race is going to look like. I think the only name that's left that people are waiting on is is whether Lara Trump gets in or not over on the Republican side. But the Beasley announcement was big news on Tuesday, and she has already started to gain some endorsements, as you said, uh, but also, I would say, endorsements from General Assembly legislators. The big question is, where are establishment Democrats going to land? Will Jeff Jackson, who's also running as a Democrat in that race, Senator Jeff Jackson, will he get these endorsements? There just seems to be a lot of friction there uh, on the Republican side, certainly crowded. Pat McCrory probably has the highest name recognition. He's a former governor. But this race on both sides is going to be hot. Yeah, I think on Monday, the rumor was out in the social media world that HHS Secretary Mandy Cohen was being courted to run for that seat as well. So you might see another Democrat jump in. I think in a press conference, she said she's not she's not considering it. But that is also something that is out in the ether. It's an interim election, so there's not a presidential election going on. This will be the top of your ballot in 2022. And it's also worth saying, traditional thinking here is that the party that just won the White House usually doesn't fare well in that next election. I think the only time uh, that was kind of an anomaly was uh, 2002 after the September 1 attacks in 2001. Will this be a good year for, for Democrats or will it be a good year for Republicans? That remains to be seen. All we do know is that this is gonna be fun races to watch. This week, we saw legislation move in the Senate that deals with child marriage. And this is an issue you've been working on. This was a, a bill that was filed by Senator Vicki Sawyer uh, around uh, setting some limits on how young a child can be when they get married. Currently, a 14-year-old in North Carolina can be married. And this is something that she and, and Senator Danny Britt are trying to remedy. It, it required some compromise over on the Senate side. And can you talk a little bit about that? The original version of the child marriage bill, which had a companion bill in both the House and the Senate, set a bright line for age 18. There were no compromises in that bill. And as you said now, minors as young as 14 can be married. That is with a pregnancy exception. So you have to be pregnant and have a judicial sign off on that. So we had our coalition group, which is made up of pretty much any interest you could think of in this subject area, Quite a lot of folks, a lot of different organizations that have been working on this talked about some compromises they were willing to make. And so they were willing to go from 18 to the bright line of 16. Senator Britt's amendment in committee would change 
the bill so that it would align with statutory rape laws. And in North Carolina, our statutory rape laws say if someone is four years or more older than a child who's younger than 15, so it, it can get a little complicated, that is statutory rape. Okay, so the compromise, correct me if I'm wrong, a 14-year-old uh, under this bill can marry an 18-year-old. That's correct. A 15-year-old can marry a 19-year-old. Correct. Okay. So I, I was in the committee with you uh, listening to the debate. It, it was a fascinating debate. Uh, obviously, you know, Senator Sawyer, with the bill she filed along with Senator Britt, they wanted what the coalition wanted. And then, you know, in talking to the leadership, they compromise on the bill. And the advocates, obviously disappointed, some of which got up and spoke. And and it really begs the question, because I, I think a lot of interest groups are challenged by this. And by the way, I don't have the answer. I'm This is the debate. Where's the line you draw on compromise, one? And then if it doesn't meet that standard, but you are making progress. So are you make are you taking one step forward towards your agenda you know it's it's a struggle right with interest groups and so i should say you know i've been dealing with issues i've been down there for a long time there are some issues sky that i've been working on that there's been no progress on in 20 years and uh, and i and i think back and i think it had we taken just little baby steps over 20 years, would I be where we want to be legislatively? Or were we wise to say, no, this is our line in the sand and we're not supporting anything else? And and I think interest groups struggle with this. And again, I don't have the answer, but you've, you must have seen this too. I mean, you must feel this with the clients that you're representing. I do. And I think it is a balance you have to make the decision what's the best decision for your client and discuss that with them. It can be really difficult, but I think you and I are both believers in incremental change. So that is where my perspective is. Yeah, I have seen the state move forward incrementally and it's almost hard to even see, right? But if you if I look at where the General Assembly is today on many issues, they are more progressive than they were 20 years ago in the General Assembly, which was, by the way, even when Democrats were in control. A great example is the civil statute of limitations for child sexual abuse. The original bill filed in 2019 would raise that age to 55. Um, the average age of disclosure is 52. Um, of child sexual abuse, and the General Assembly ended up passing 28, age 28, which was a big hit. But it's a start, and you then you can look back at those records to see how many lawsuits were filed, and then kind of inch your way up in age, and that's the approach that we took on that. Yeah. So yesterday, and by the way, we are recording this on Thursday. Uh, so yesterday, there was a little parliamentary dust up in the house representative garland pierce a veteran legislator for a democrat representing hope county asked to be uh, acknowledged by the speaker and was making a request about 
proxy votes. So his request was specifically to suspend the rules for his votes um, last Thursday. The motion was to suspend the rules. He wanted to be recorded on all the votes that were taken last Thursday, which was like, I think between 10 and 15 votes. They weren't all yeses, they weren't all noes. It was it was a variety of votes. And he gave a floor speech saying, this was a mistake. I'm not trying to change my vote from yes to no on things. I am trying to be recorded as voting. What was really interesting is that there was a debate about this and folks saying, He's just trying to do what's right. This was unintentional. He specifically said, I'm not going to blame my LA, but she has a lot of things going on. She just doesn't know it's, she, she can't keep up with everything. <laughs> yeah. And then the speaker did note that it takes the clerk's office a long time to actually go through all of those bills and change it. Something that maybe you wouldn't think about because you see an electronic voting system and think, oh, they just need to change it in the computer. But that is not true. They have to have the physical bills and those bills are over in the Senate now. So you have to go to the Senate clerk and get the bills back and change all of the bills and then send them back over. And so the speaker noted that it would take hours to do this. By the way, we have a very talented clerk's office on both the House and the Senate side, and they do incredible work keeping everything you see on the website, keeping the votes, tracking committee notices, all of this stuff, favorable reports from committee. They work so hard. They are there there well into the night. They're first there, last to leave. And this is a process. But the Speaker ultimately, or I should say maybe the House, they took a vote and they allowed Representative Garland Pierce to have those votes recorded. The speaker was very clear that this is the only time this is going to happen, but partly because proxy voting ended yesterday. And we've been doing proxy voting because of COVID, right? Right. And I think the majority leader, John Bell, at the end of session got up and said, there are things you'll remember about your time serving here. One is your first day. One is your first bill. And for me, it's the end of proxy voting. Because after each bill is voted on, first the speaker acknowledges Representative Bell, who reads off the proxy votes for the Republicans. And then he acknowledges Representative Reeves, who reads off the proxy votes for the Democrats. And so it's something you've become accustomed to at this point because we've been doing it for a year. But it does feel like things are moving faster and it's it really slows down the process. So this week, Sky, it was such a pleasure to to sit down with our new labor commissioner, Josh Dobson. I had the pleasure of interviewing him. I know you had FOMO while I was doing this. You were helping us. This is a brag about how you know what FOMO means. I do. According to my, (laughs) according to my directory here that you provided for me, FOMO means fear of missing out. Okay. So you had FOMO. (laughs) FOMO AF. Stop it. (laughs) (laughs) We're all in pain here. (laughs) So I got to sit down with Commissioner Dobson. 
we have worked with him when he was in the General Assembly. You were unable to be on the interview because you were handling a hearing for a client in your role as an attorney for the North Carolina Coalition Against Sexual Assault. I have to say, it, it, was, it was an incre- incredible time with him. What a great guy. I know you have nothing but good things to say about him. He is just so genuine, sweet, caring. He is a good man. The Do Politics Better podcast is supported by the North Carolina Travel Industry Association. Founded in 1955, NCTIA has a distinguished history of partnering with the North Carolina General Assembly to strengthen and preserve tourism in North Carolina. Visit nctia.travel for more information on how you can support your local tourism destination and the thousands of North Carolina jobs it creates. Labor Commissioner Josh Dobson, it is an honor to have you at this table and to have you on the Do Politics Better podcast. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Brian. Good to be here. What does the Labor Commissioner do in North Carolina? It is a statewide elected role, so you went before the voters. They elected you to be in this position. But what exactly do you do? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I get that a lot. And on the campaign trail, I, I spent a lot of my time talking about why I wanted to run for this office and what the department actually did. About half of what we do is workplace safety. Well, when you hear OSHA in North Carolina, that's us uh, in almost every case. So that that's the biggest thing. Uh, in addition to that, uh, that gets most of the attention. I don't need to tell you as the elevators. That's about 10% of what we do, but uh, that gets most of the attention. We also inspect all the rides in North Carolina at every carnival. We inspect boilers uh, in North Carolina to make sure that they are in, inspected on a, either a yearly or every two-year basis. Uh, wage and hour complaints. We, If someone has a complaint with their employer about not getting paid what they're supposed to be paid, they file a complaint with the Department of Labor. That's a huge part of what we do. Uh, we have something called retaliatory employment discrimination. If someone files a workers' comp claim and then they feel like they've lost their job because they filed that claim, that would they would then file a, sec- a separate issue with the Department of Labor. Uh, so that's some of the big things that we do. We also have training. We also have consultative. We have one, one thing I'm really proud of that Commissioner Barry worked hard on was our consultative bureau, which what that means, we got the compliance side, which is penalties, fees, where you kind of the regulatory arm. But then you have the consultative side where by statute they can't talk to each other. So if a business is doing something uh, that they're not sure, an employer is doing something that they're not sure if it's safe or not, they can reach out to us and say, hey, what do we need to do here and, and, and do it free from uh, punitive damages of any size, any size. So that's a that's a big part of what we do. There are others. It's not real sexy stuff, Brian. It's really not, but it's critical to the state of North Carolina. Uh, it's about a forty million dollar budget, uh, with about three hundred and seventy five employees, uh, offices everywhere from Asheville to Wilmington, uh, one in Winston, one in Charlotte, and then a separate office in Raleigh that uh, that our compliance officers and our wage enforcement officers do the work across the state and that's for five million workers that we're responsible for the protection of so uh, proud of the work and part of the reason that I ran for the office was the diverse nature of the job and what all was encompassed in the Department of Labor. So your $40 million comes from the General Assembly. They appropriate that money. So so half of it is from the General Assembly, and then half is receipt supported from what we get from the boiler fees and the so, elevator fees. So it's about 2020, maybe 1921, but about, 20, about 50-50. So I was at Carolina Beach 
two or three weeks ago with my wife. We were at a restaurant. We go next door. There's a new restaurant being built, and they have an elevator shaft in there. Just It's being built. I noticed on the door uh, you had there was a note that said you had concerns about this elevator and it the, the restaurant was not yet open so it's important work what you're doing no one wants to get on a bad elevator that's right absolutely it is and there's about twenty five thousand throughout the state that have to be inspected by the department of labor so it is critical so i i suspect when i go back that elevator will be working properly and you will have if it's pretty- not you let me know <laughs> i definitely will let you know can you talk a little bit about your political career when when did it start so i've been so blessed and and sometimes it's better to be lucky than good Uh, 2010 was a good year for republicans so i was fortunate to be elected county commissioner in mcdowell county two years into that four-year term governor mccrory was successful and my predecessor uh, was tapped to be part of his cabinet, which opened up my, the seat in the 85th House District. I had ties to two of the three counties, so I was fortunate enough to get the appointment to that seat in January of 2013. Uh, served four terms in the State House. Uh, the, the good people of Avery, Mitchell, and McDowell give me that opportunity for eight years. I knew that I was only, it's weird, again, timing and luck is so, so much a part of it. I'd already made up my mind that I was not going to run for the state house again. I'd already decided that. I was going to go home and figure out what was next. Uh, The only thing that had an appeal to me by that time in my life was commissioner of labor. I assumed commissioner Barry was going to run again because we weren't that close prior to that. So I didn't know. Uh, So I assumed she was going to run again. So I thought maybe my time in politics was up and I was ready to go home. Uh, April, I I looked at the News and Observer one day, and uh, she had made the announcement that she wasn't going to run again. I didn't have to spend a lot of time thinking about whether I was going to run or not uh, because I'd already decided I wasn't going to run for the state house. And if it would have been Secretary of State that was open, I I would not have run because Mm -hmm. this is the one that had an appeal to me. Mm -hmm. So I'd already, I didn't have to spend maybe a day thinking about it uh, because that was the position that had an appeal to me. Uh, And again, because I said the broad nature of the, the job, but in addition to that, uh, the, the consequential nature of the job, again, responsible for 5 million workers. Uh, I, I didn't know completely what I was getting into with a statewide race being far different than a small rural Western North Carolina district. Uh, but uh, we were blessed to win the primary. It was a brutal, brutal, hard primary, but we got through that, uh, just taking our message. And then uh, COVID uh, really changed the dynamics of campaigning statewide. Uh, but we, as we could, and we did a lot of Zoom, we did travel some, we just tried to take that message of consensus. And I said, time in and time out, I'm going to listen to everybody. Mm-hmm. And everybody is going to have a seat at the table at the Department of Labor. Are we always going to agree? No, but everyone will have a seat. It's a very close race, could have went either way, but we were fortunate enough to be successful in November. And uh, I'm just honored and thrilled to be the North Carolina Commissioner of Labor. What what are those big bucket priorities you have for labor? So so uh, a few things. One, 
Part of the strategic plan before I got here was to reduce fatalities on a, on a yearly basis and reduce the injury and illness rate. I think it's 5% and 2% respectively that is part of our strategic plan. So I want to continue that. That's, that's, a big, that's the main thing that we do is keep employees safe. In addition to that, I really wanted to focus as I was out there on the campaign trail, I really heard about wage and hour complaints and some issues with that and making sure that those frontline workers, those 5 million workers in North Carolina get paid what they're supposed to be paid. So that's another focus and we're working with a lot of diverse groups to try to get input and make that happen. Uh, and the fourth thing, and that's why I'm really proud to be here today, and I guess we'll get into that later, but the fourth thing uh, really goes to this podcast, and that's Do Politics Better. Uh, I, I, I think there is so much divisiveness out there on both sides that, that most of the people are hungry for a kind of politics that tries to bring people together, tries to listen to all sides and solve problems, and leaves the ideology to the side. Uh, and I thought, what better place when you're dealing with the safety of the workers of North Carolina? And that's, that's the persona that I tried to approach the General Assembly, and that's the same demeanor and uh, direction that I want to take the Department of Labor. So those are the four things. And so I'm going to jump into that because I met you in your role as a representative in the General Assembly. You were known as a consensus builder. You worked with all sorts of groups. Uh, you might have agreed with them, disagreed with them, but it was not uncommon to see uh, organizations coming out of your office, whether they considered themselves progressive or conservative. Talk a little bit about who you are. Where does this come from, this consensus building Josh Dobson? You know, I don't know that I've ever had a, a rigid ideology. I, I always wanted to get in to public service and politics to solve problems. My very first race as county commissioner, I focused on public safety and particularly EMS, where they, it's a weird thing and it's coincidence now that it had to do with wage and hour and the way the laws were written, but they were actually getting paid less for overtime. And they came to me and said, this is a real problem. We, we need to do something. So as county commissioner, I said, let's set all this other stuff aside and let's see if we can help these frontline EMS workers. And we did. We raised their overtime pay in, in McDowell County. Uh, so it's always been about solving problems and, and, and making things better. And, and I, I just like to find agreement. I don't, I don't like the divisive side of it. Uh, yeah, there's these issues that clearly there's going to be difference of opinion. And I have passionate beliefs, as do others. But in the General Assembly, okay, we may not agree on the Second Amendment or on uh, other issues that are tend to be more divisive. But can we agree on broadband for rural areas? Can we agree on... Uh, health care issues and try to find a way to get public health departments and money and funds into those rural areas so people can uh, have the, the services and, and the things that uh, are needed in those underserved areas. That's where I wanted to focus. That's where I thought I, I left the divisiveness to those who enjoyed it. It just wasn't ever my thing. Uh, and that's the way it was for county commissioner. And that's the way I tried to govern um, in, the, in the General Assembly and, and the way that I'm trying to govern at the Department of Labor. Yeah, so I, I talked to child advocates, mental health advocates, uh, firefighters, paramedics. They they all agree. At, talking to the lobbyists about you coming onto the podcast, you are missed at the General Assembly. I can tell you that. 
Well, I, I miss I miss doing the policy work. I enjoyed it so much and working with the different stakeholders and the constituents and bringing everybody together uh, to try to solve a problem. Uh, I, I miss my time over there. No, no buyer's remorse. I love the Department of Labor and I love what we're doing there, but uh, definitely a, a time I'll never forget my time in the House. So I, I appreciate you sharing that. I remember your race had just been called for Labor Commissioner. And you put out a tweet about your opponent, Jessica Holmes, and, and you not only congratulated her on a, a race well run, you said she had a servant's heart. Mm -hmm. I remember you said that. We're not living in a time when we say those types of things about our opponent. And so when you see it play out, just fighting and mm -hmm. fighting and fighting, how, how do you process this? So I think most people are not political addicts. Most people... Uh, that, that gets most of the attention because that's what's out there in, in social media land, and that's the, the, the politicians that do those things are the ones that get on TV. But most people are not political addicts, particularly in the Department of Labor. The 5 million people that I'm responsible for keeping safe, they just want to go to work, and they want to come home to their families. And when I focus on that and not, not uh, the divisive nature of our politics, that's when I think we do the best at the Department of Labor, and I certainly think that's when I'm at my best. So if Josh Dobson had a magic wand and could wave it and fix something in our politics that you think would bring us together, make for better policy, make for a better state government or even federal government, how would you do it? One is not really politics, but I have to get this in there. If we could eliminate all fatalities in the workplace, that would be the one thing that I would want to do. Uh, but as far as our politics go, let me think of the best way to say this. Most people are doing it for the right reasons. Even those that I may have a policy disagreement with, I don't see them as the enemy. I just don't. Mm -hmm. uh, we may have a policy difference, and we may had a meeting earlier today where it was a group that traditionally the Department of Labor may or may not have met with, and I'm like, okay, this makes sense. Let's see if we can get there. Uh, this issue, we can't get there on. Uh, so, so if I could find a way to bring people together like that and, and help others understand that even those that you disagree with uh, – their motives are pure most of the time. Mm -hmm. And you may not agree, but uh, I, I just don't see advocates as enemies, and I never will. And I wish, other, I wish we could have more of that. Is it I guess that'd be it. Is it listening more? I mean, so I've, I've had some advocates uh, tell me that in the last three months in the Department of Labor, they have had more access to you. They can't say, you know, he signed off on everything they were uh, proposing to you, but just there's this feeling out there that this commissioner wants to hear from everybody. And so is that what we need to do, just listen to each other? I think that would be a great place to start. I think if we could just have conversations with each other and understand that nobody has a monopoly on what's completely right or completely wrong and have that dialogue and have that understanding that that would I think that's a great place to start and that's what I'm trying to do well Commissioner Josh Dobson it, it was a pleasure speaking to you today it was an honor to have you at this table 
North Carolina's workforce is very fortunate to have you as our Commissioner of Labor. You certainly know how to do politics better, and thank you for being on the podcast. I love this podcast. I love what you guys are doing, and, and there could be no better title than that because we all need to do politics better. So thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. So we're back at it next week. We will be in May. Yeah, buckle up, folks. The Senate wanted to wrap up the budget in April send it over to the house let the house work on their version in may so while the senate budget could possibly drop in the senate next week we are also in the week leading up to crossover just explain sky what the pace is going to be like this coming week in the general assembly interestingly enough the house is not taking votes on monday or tuesday of next week and the speaker said that's because they dispersed of so many bills this week and so they will come back on wednesday but on tuesday he did know it would be full of committee meetings so they'll have all of those bills through committee and hopefully onto the floor on wednesday but he also said you should expect to stay late wednesday thursday also of note in the House is that their bill filing deadline is on Tuesday, again, a day when they're not voting. And so bill filing deadline Tuesday, crossover is the next Thursday. So you're looking at that very short window of time if you have a bill that's coming in late, but it, it'll it be hectic and there will be committee meetings that conflict with one another. We saw that a few times this week folks missing from committees because they're in a different committee. And I think that you'll see a ton of bills moving through committees that will be meeting multiple times. Some committees that only maybe meet once a week and they'll be meeting multiple times during the week. I noted to you that we are now in the stage of session where at the end of every rules committee, Representative Jamie Bowles says, is there going to be another one of these today? Um, because that could happen. Yeah, he's not quite like former Representative Elmer Floyd, who every day <laughs> wanted to know, how long is this going to last today? Because I'm getting hungry, Mr. Speaker. Yeah. It's pretty funny. So we found ourselves this week, I mean, it was just such a fast pace, as you said, 100 bills a day flying out of there. You and I, along with Christy Jones, our colleague, uh, part of our daily discussion is okay who's going to be where because we have to be in multiple places to cover the various clients that we're representing it 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 is it is pretty hard and i can imagine if you're a legislator you have a bill in this committee you need to be on that committee to vote uh, it's got to be hectic for them yeah that happened to us on wednesday i said to you you need to come talk to me after this other committee so we can decide who's going where yeah yeah it's also a time if if you're if you have a senate bill over on the house side you're probably not going to see your bill move in the next two weeks the priority generally as you're leading up to crossover and again that's the date you have to have a bill out of the chamber so that it remains alive for the biennium most chairs have said we're house committees are only hearing house bills senate committees are only hearing senate bills we're going to put everything on ice until after the crossover 
If you have a bill that has a priority, something that needs to pass and it's time sensitive, those bills may be moving through um, both chambers. And I think there have been a couple of those bills this session, but not a lot. Um, but other than that, you will just be seeing loads of House bills going through House committees and loads of Senate bills going through Senate committees. Sky, we've gotten a lot of, of questions comments from listeners especially those working in the building they want to know when we're going to bring back the do politics better dinners that we hosted pre-pandemic everyone who is working at the general assembly has had an opportunity to be vaccinated most folks have been i think the speaker said um last week or two weeks ago that his whole caucus has been vaccinated so we discussed when will be a good time to have a vaccinated uh, do politics better dinner and we will start that up the week after crossover i'm so excited that we're going to resume our do politics better dinners and i'm so excited that you know we're just getting back to normal again it's about time to let people know whether we like them or not <laughs> that's right, that is right. <laughs> Well, I'm kidding. We'll invite you anyway. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We'll invite you. Yeah. I'm, it's going to be great. And, and people have, you know, a, a few lobbyists have said they want in too and that they will, they will bring dinner. And, but a lot of folks want to eat your food too. You cook such great meals for these dinners. I think a lot of folks really want to get back to the table and eat your food. Including you. Yes. Including me. Well, that's our episode for this week. I'm looking forward to hanging out with you next week. Yeah, we don't spend enough time together. That's true. <laughs> we certainly don't. I hope you take the time to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. If you get a chance, write a review. Help listeners find us. We hope you have a great weekend and a great week ahead. And remember to do politics better. Why do we struggle with this part when all we do all day is talk to each other? You just kicked me. Sorry. It's mainly us making fun of people. I think that's why we can't put any of this on. I mean...